Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Autism Spectrum Radio. If you are caring for a person with autism, great information from a trusted source can be a lifeline. We hope today's conversation will help you create success for the extraordinary individual with autism in your life. Now, here is your host, Rob Haupt. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Autism Spectrum Radio. I'm your host, Rob Haupt. Um, I'm the Vice President of Business Development at Autism Spectrum Therapies, as well as a board-certified behavior analyst. I'm really glad you're with us today um, because I think we have a, another fantastic show. Um, in the same theme as last week, uh, I think this week's show is really going to go into new territory, expand the, the topics and, and the information that we provide, um, and, and really go into um, kind of a niche or come to a unique subject that we don't always talk about every day, but is really important for our kids and as well as for ourselves. Um, but before we get into the show and before we get into our, our interview with our guest, uh, I actually wanted to share with you guys a really cool phone call I got this week. Um, last week, I had the opportunity to sit down with uh, the director of a school that we consult with and we work with in New Orleans. And I know I've talked a lot about my experiences in New Orleans, and, and it's just been a, an amazing experience for me this last year. And as I was talking to this director, we were, were talking about our program and we were talking about the consultative services that we provide and how it's going and how we can make it better. And then our conversation led into the autism walk that had been held about a week, week and a half prior. And I had said there just how much I enjoyed the walk. You know, I've been to a lot of different walks and this one was really important for me, I said to her, because you know, I'm in California. I'm, I'm, I'm sitting in Los Angeles right now. This is where I live. I've been living here for almost nine years now. And when I was at this New Orleans walk, I really felt like I was part of the New Orleans community. I felt like everyone treated me like, that. there's Rob. I know Rob. Rob's part of the team. Rob's part of the family, the community. Um, and it was coming from parents. It was coming from professionals. It was coming from people I was just meeting for the first time. And it just it felt real. It felt genuine. And the director said to me, but Rob, you are part of the community. You shouldn't have just felt it that day. You are our community. You are part of us. You are part of the team. It doesn't matter where you live. You're here in your heart and in your spirit, and you think about us all the time. We don't care where you live. And I just, I love that thought. It just, it applied to so much of what I do. And I thought about this show right away and the idea of community that I feel like we talk about every week, but it's so important. You know, we are building a community. We don't have to be living on the same street, going to the same neighborhood pizza joint. We can be anywhere and build this community. And, and the technology out there makes it even easier. Uh, the, the Facebook, Skype, FaceTime, all these different things we've got out there that bring us all together. And it was just really special for me to get that, that endorsement, that, that praise from someone who I really value their opinion. I really value what we've done together. And to hear that and get that confirmation that things like this show, things like the Facebook, the communication I have with families every day in all these different states really is making a difference. So I really want to just share that story and, and, let, uh, and let her know how much I appreciate uh, those really, really kind words. So going into our show today, um, after this uplifting story, I feel like 
we may bring it down a bit in terms of our topic, but that doesn't have to bring our conversation down because our, our topic this week is actually grief and dealing with loss and helping individuals on the spectrum specifically with those um, areas. And again, it's, it's so funny when, when the idea of this week's show came up, light bulbs went off and I had this immediate reaction because two weeks ago, this was a conversation I had with one of my clients, one of my parents. Um, they, as a family, were dealing with grief. They were dealing with the loss. Um, the little kiddo I work with and we work with uh, was dealing with the loss of his father. And this mom had said to me that there's not enough resources out there. She's like, I, I don't know where to turn. I didn't know where to turn. And this family is now a little bit further along in the grieving process. And she said to me, Rob, my goal is to sit down with you and figure out a way to get more resources and more programs out there to deal with the loss of a parent or a sibling or a loved one because it has obviously been so hard for us, but we want to make sure that our experiences can help others. And uh, I was chatting with our guest this week uh, the other day, and I said to her that, I feel like this mom is going to be smiling when she listens to this show because I know she will because I know she does. And she's just going to have a smile saying, Rob, you did okay. This is a good first step. So with that, I want to introduce my guest this week. Uh, my guest is Carla Helbert. And Carla is a licensed professional counselor, an LPC, and has been working as a therapist since 2000. Uh, she operates a private psychotherapy practice with a focus on loss, grief, and bereavement, and specializes in therapy for people with autism spectrum disorders. Prior to opening her private practice, Carla worked for 13 years for a private nonprofit organization serving children, adolescents, and adults with autism. She also facilitates bereavement support groups for local hospices and for the MISS Foundation, an international nonprofit helping families grieving the death of a child. As a bereaved mother and a trained therapist, she has a deep personal as well as a clinical understanding of the difficult issues facing those grieving the deaths of loved ones. In addition to this amazing background, uh, Carla also has uh, recently written a book that is uh, on its way out. It's called Finding Your Own Way to Grieve, a creative activity workbook for kids and teens on the autism spectrum. Carla, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to the show. Thank you, Rob. I'm so happy to be here with you today. I mean, I, I, like I said at the top, I'm really excited because I really don't know a lot about teaching kids on the spectrum to grieve or to handle the loss of a loved one. Like, I feel like this is a topic that I'm going to learn a lot about, too, because there really isn't a lot out there. There is almost nothing else out there. Um, there besides my book, there's another very good book um, by Catherine Faraday, and um, it's excellent. And I actually think that our two books can go hand in hand. Um, but other than that, there's a, a handful of things for specific to professionals um, helping them deal with people on the spectrum as well as people with developmental disabilities during times of loss. But there's very, very little specifically directed toward those people on the spectrum, and then subsequently their families along with them. Um, so I'm really happy to be adding to what's there, and hopefully we'll be building on that as time goes on. Do you have a sense of why this is kind of an underwritten about topic? Is it because folks like me maybe don't think to cover it right away, or is, is there another reason? Well, I think there's several reasons. 
Possibly. I'm pretty sure there's not a lot of research out there on the topic. Maybe if there's a researcher, somebody want to pick that up. But Yeah, seriously. <laughs> right. So I know in, in my own personal grief process and in uh, working through my own grief and then moving into working with other people dealing with grief, there, there's very little resources in general. And I, and I think that's because we're a very death-denying society. We don't like to think about death. We don't like to talk about death. We don't like to talk about aging, much less dying. Mm-hmm. So it's not a popular kind of topic, and it's something that's pushed to the side very often in our society, in Western society in general. And it doesn't come up until somebody dies. And even then, it's often, oh, okay, well, let's get you some medicine to take or let's get you somebody to talk to or you can go do something and handle this and and get through it and let's move on and everything get back to normal. And that's really not how grief works. It's a natural process. It's a normal thing. When you love somebody and they die, you hurt and you grieve. It's a natural feeling that happens when something that is precious to you is lost. It doesn't have to be a person. I mean, any kind of loss creates the feeling of grief. And then the expression of that grief is what we call mourning. And while we do have funerals and we do have very, you know, specific kinds of things we do, generally they're done in the next couple weeks after the loss happens and you're supposed to be back to normal. And that's just not what happens. It affects our whole being, you know, as, as people, as humans. It affects us cognitively, sensorially. It affects us emotionally. It affects us physically. And nobody prepares us for that. And that's for everybody, not just people on the spectrum. Yeah. And so I think specifically with, with people on the autism spectrum, there tends to be so many other things that we're dealing with, you know, especially when you have kids and you're trying to get services and you're trying to deal with learning issues, you're trying to get the right kind of support for your kid in school, you're trying to, to work through so many things, whether it's OT, whether it's behavior issues, whether it's whatever's going on, that just, you don't think, oh, wow, what are we going to do when somebody dies or, you know, when a pet dies or when a staff leaves or when these things come, it's just not something that's at the forefront of our minds. And then when it happens, we're all sort of left with, oh, my goodness, what do we do? Does that when make sense? I think that's it, kind of what happens. No, absolutely. And, you know, it was funny as I was, you know, as I was reviewing the book and reading it and, you know, talking to you, the, the first thought I had was we talk so much about transition. I, mm. I feel like I don't know a single kid I've ever worked with where we don't have a conversation about, you know, he struggles with transition or how can we make transitions better? And you just said it, like the loss of maybe um, a therapist or a teacher or that big transition. It doesn't have to be a loved one. It could be, you know, I'm thinking of one kiddo who had a really hard time but when I moved from Massachusetts to California, and they really prepared him for my move. Um, but we don't, we don't take it that next step. Mm-hmm. And now I'm kind of questioning, like, how have I missed this all along, considering I preach transition and preparation and priming, yet I haven't um, gone that far. And maybe it's that unexpectedness, like you were saying at the beginning, where we don't want to talk about death. We don't want to talk about mortality as a society. That's, I mean, it's just, it's a really interesting thing to wrap your head around. Well, isn't it really interesting, too, when you just said that? And actually, I have never had that thought specific to transition, but death is really the ultimate transition. Isn't yeah, it? absolutely. <laughs> so, you know, and really on 
the death and grief and dying sort of side of it specifically, I've always looked at death before my own grief. You know, I've always kind of been death and dying and grief and bereavement have always been an interest area of mine, for lack of a better word. But to me, it seems like it's just it's this developmental stage. It's this ultimate developmental stage, the next thing that we do. And I've never really thought about it in terms of, you know, the transition talk that we that we do a lot of times in the autism community. You're right. And so how, how much more of a transition can you get than, yeah. than death? Well, I want to talk more about, like you said, this is something that for, for a few reasons you've kind of gotten yourself into. Uh, I remember you were saying this is one of your niches when we spoke earlier. Um, and I, I want to talk more about that when we come back from this commercial break. Autism Spectrum Therapies is proud to present Autism Spectrum Radio. At AST, we see a world where people with autism dream and achieve their full potential. Our promise is to support families through our extensive resources, highly trained staff, and outstanding programs. At AST, we recognize that every child is unique. We are proud to offer what we believe is the most cohesive approach to supporting your child's needs and goals at each stage. From ABA to speech therapy, occupational therapy, and social skills, we have the elements you need to build the plan that is just right for you. One company, one team, with one mission. To support individuals and their families to dream and achieve their full potential. Call us today to let us know how we can best support your family at 866-727-8274. To find out more about ASD, visit our website at www.autismtherapies.com. Welcome back to Autism Spectrum Radio. Uh, I'm joined by Carla Helbert, our guest, and we are having... Uh, a tough conversation, but I think a really great conversation for us to have about um, helping individuals on the spectrum and their families dealing with grief and the loss of a loved one. Um, and right before the break, Carla, you started to kind of go into a little bit of your background. And, you know, one of the the things that really occurred to me, and, and you said it at the top, was, you know, death isn't something we necessarily want to talk about. A lot of times we as a society don't want to think about it. Um, and that may be a reason why a lot of people don't do more research or don't do more on this topic. But what gravitated you? What made you the exception to get into grief counseling, um, specifically with individuals with autism? Well, um, <clears throat> when I was in graduate school, I took a class in a semester-long class in counseling and, and grief and death and dying. And as I said before, I think I've always just kind of been interested in it. Death has never been something that's freaked me out. I don't find it scary. My grandfather was a florist, and he, when I was, I remember mm. being three, four years old, and he would take me on deliveries to funeral homes, and he would always take me in to see the person who had died. And I didn't know those people, you know, and he would pick mm-hmm. me up and, and let me look at them, and I was never afraid. He told me it was okay if I wanted to put my hand on them, and he would talk about how he was not going to be here forever, and, oh, I'm, I'm not going to be here for always. And it was something that he, and I just would be like, oh, come on, you know, granddaddy. But it was always something that he was willing to discuss with me. 
and prepare me for, I think. And my personality is kind of such that those things don't, spiritual things and death and sort of, I guess, maybe mysteries don't really freak me out that much. It's just mm-hmm. part of life. So anyway, um, I took that class and uh, was also a hospice volunteer during graduate school. And then I had my job and I was working with kids on the spectrum. Um, and one child came in and both of his grandfathers had recently died and he was having a really hard time. And I looked around and of course there was nothing out there. And so I wrote him a, a very short story, which the book is actually based on, well, it grew from. But then, and that was around 2000, I just uh, had worked for them for a long time as direct care um, in group homes and with teenagers and with adults. And then I decided if I wanted to stay in this field and have a career, which is another show, you know, it's too bad direct care staff cannot, that can't be a viable career without having two or three more jobs. I needed to do something else, and so I decided I wanted to be a therapist. And then I became a therapist at this school, and he was one of my clients at the time. Well, so in 2006, my infant son died of a very rare brain tumor, and we had, he was diagnosed in August 2005 at only three months old. And then um, six months later, he died. And you would think that my whole sort of life and career and path sort of prepared me, and I was not prepared. I mean, I was maybe more prepared than somebody on the street that just couldn't think of death and never had any exposure and all these mm-hmm. things. But still, nothing really prepares you when something like that happens. And a friend of mine said to me, oh, you know, this is what you're going to do. You're going to be a grief therapist. And I just thought, oh, my God, I can't. No, I'm not. I can't help anybody do this. I have no idea what I'm doing. But so I sort of stumbled through my own path, you know, for a few years, and I'm still on that same path. But, you know, I got more and more comfortable, I guess, in grief, and I decided, you know, I really do need to kind of do something and <clears throat> to help other people. I mean, I've learned so much, and I've gotten so much support, and um, I needed to do something else as part of my own journey. You know, I think mm-hmm. I say a lot, and my whole book is the, whole, the Creative Activity Workbook. It's all about doing things and being and expressing how you feel and what's going on in your body, in your mind, in your own journey, and helping kids with autism to be able to do that. And really, the book is for everybody. It's not just for people with autism. It's for their parents. It's for their families. It's for people who are neurotypical, you know. So, But I'm, I tried everything I could do to try to move those feelings through me, and, and I found that the things that worked the best were the things that allowed me to be creative, whether it was writing, cooking, dancing, moving, painting, gardening, and I discovered that that's true for almost everybody. It's just a matter of finding what the thing is that works for you, but but creativity and expression and finding ways of moving it through you. It's not even like getting it out or healing. I don't even talk about healing anymore because I don't Mm -hmm. think you don't need to heal when there's nothing wrong with you, and there's nothing wrong with grieving. It's a natural, normal thing that happens when somebody you love dies. So I guess... You know, my question was going to be for you. you. You talk about the creativity, and I was, you know, it's, what are some of the tips, or I guess, what are some of the things, you know, that a family could take away if someone out there right now, like if I'm thinking of the mom who, I, who said to me, I want to do more for my children, I want to do more for other kids, like, what are some of the activities they should be looking at? How can they use some of this creativity 
to help support their kids? Well, again, I think that's highly individual. And, and if we're mm-hmm. talking specifically about kids on the spectrum, I think there's a lot of other things. And helping those children or mm-hmm. teenagers, I think there's a lot of things that, that families and parents and other caregivers should really be looking out for. Overall, basically, a person with autism or Asperger's is going to experience the same kind of grief reactions as anybody else in their same developmental stage. You know, young children might, you know, act younger than they are or they'll exhibit behaviors they might have previously grown out of, so they might regress, they might have bad dreams, these kind of things. You know, that's going to kind of be the same, but with people with autism, you have to be really careful because there may tend to be more of a withdrawal, which also happens with neurotypical people when they're grieving. They want to withdraw, but they also need to be brought out. And it can be really hard for somebody on the spectrum to even recognize what's going on. I mean, it's hard for neurotypical people to even recognize what's going on. I spend so much of my time saying, oh, you're normal, you're normal, you're not crazy. No, that's normal because people don't know what it is they're going through. I would say also with kids with autism, the sensory piece of it can be really huge. Most Mm -hmm. people, you know this, of course, Mm -hmm. I have yet to meet a person on the spectrum who does not have sensory perception issues of some kind, and those Mm -hmm. are all individual too. But during grief, Anytime, neurotypical people tend to experience these changes and how they experience things sensorily. So lights might be too bright. Crowds might be too difficult to deal with. Noises can be super irritating. I found, I'm very extroverted, and I found it was the strangest experience for me. After my son died, I had the hardest time looking people in the eyes for like a couple years. And I was like, what is going on with that? I don't understand. And I still don't really know exactly what it was about. I have some ideas that's not for this show, but that was also very hard. And so I don't know how that might affect a kid with ASD who already has maybe issues with eye contact. But, you know, being really careful not to, to give them some space, to let them be who they are, and to notice really carefully any changes in behavior and in sensory Mm -hmm. issues and letting them talk about that and telling them this might be a problem. It might change for you. There are people on the spectrum who maybe never have really noticed too much of sensory issues, and then suddenly they're flooded with them during grief and loss. And -hmm. it can be really scary. You know, as I was reading the book and I was looking at some of the activities, you know, and you you talked about the creativity and the activity piece, I was wondering, is was part of the purpose or part of the inspiration for it doing these activities together. Now, the activities have a correlation and, and some expression of grief and loss and death, but is part of it just the togetherness? Like, I'm, I'm thinking back to myself as a child losing a loved one, and you talked about like that, you almost, uh, re- you know, regress back, you, you step back from society, maybe you become a little bit more introverted as an individual. Is this to bring about a sense of closeness? Like, you know, I have other family members who are still here. I have other loved ones who are still here. Is that part of the intent of some of these activities? Possibly, yeah. I do talk about support in the book mm-hmm. and how important support is and connection. And, and I think that's always true of family. And, you know, if it's a, like you were talking about your mom, the client, who's the mom whose uh, husband yeah. had died, she's grieving too. You know, yeah. and so 
not only, and I do say in the introduction of this book, I, I recommend that you know if the parent or the caregiver is grieving, that they get their own journal and they get their own notebook and they work through the book as well. They can do it alone and they can do it with the child. And any of those activities can be individual or they can be mm-hmm. something that you do together. I think I didn't specifically have it in my mind. I wanted people to do them together to create that connectivity with each other in the action, but mm-hmm. more of so that the people around the child would be aware of what's going on because mm-hmm. they're designed so that there's that creative expression, which I think is hugely important in helping us to move those feelings through us and to feel them, which is really it's important to feel them. Mm-hmm. We may think we're going to die, but we're not. I mean, eventually we're all going to die. That's not what I mean. In grief, right. with the pain of grief, sometimes we avoid that pain because it hurts so much, and we don't want to do it. But if we don't feel it, it can't go through us. And if mm-hmm. it never goes through us, it's going to just be sitting there until one day it will come out, and maybe not in ways we like. So I encourage everybody that I work with who's grieving to step into it. We have to feel safe to do that. And so when you're with somebody you love and you trust, you can feel safe to do that and then work through those feelings. And creative, expressive activities really help us to, to be able to manage that process better. Mm-hmm. If they're doing it with a person they trust, their parent or a therapist or another person who is a, a trustworthy person for them, that can help them understand each other better. So they can each know oh, this person's feeling this and I'm feeling this because grief is so individual. Yeah. And almost anything you're feeling is, is okay. And so it's good to know what I feel is okay, what you feel is okay, and you learn what the other person is experiencing in that way. You know, I'm really glad you, you mentioned the, that idea, and, and this is what I was going to ask you next is the parents still grieving and mm. the idea that, well, they can go through some of these things on their own too. Um, and keep their own journal because I feel like that is, it's the question I have gotten and it's the question I feel like I would always get is how do I help my child grieve if I'm still dealing with my own grief? But I really like that advice of this can be for you as well, but it, it's almost like if I hear you correctly, everything's individual. It, it's not about comparing myself to my child or myself to this other individual, it's tailor everything to be about what you need, tailor it about what your loved one needs, um, and then have that togetherness, and that will do a a lot, and that will really really be the first foundation of, of where you start. Absolutely. Grief is as individual as every single person who feels it. Mm-hmm. And what works for me may not work for you, probably won't work for you. You know, and what works for me on one day may not work for me the next day. I mean, it's so another thing that I, that I like to talk about and, and that particularly is important for people on the spectrum. Grief is one of the absolute most chaotic times that any of us can experience. You do not know how you're going to feel literally from one second to the next. You might be having an okay day and then suddenly you see something, a trigger that reminds you of the person who has died. It could be a song. It could, it could be just the weather, really. And then suddenly you're just in the pit again, and it can be so fast, and you don't know when it's going to happen, and it can be scary, and you can feel completely separate from everybody else around you. You can feel like you're going crazy sometimes. Really, and I, I'm, I'm really don't, I'm not kidding, and I'm not being, I, I'm, 
this is what I hear from all the people that I work with, and they don't expect it. And this doesn't happen with every single person we know who dies. Right. But the closer you are to the person who has died and the more emotionally entwined or physically entwined. I mean, if, if you're that person is there with you every day, that your schedule revolves around this person, you eat breakfast together, you go to bed in the same house, this is, you know, your relationship is really, really close. When that person's gone, your grief and how deep it is and how long you grieve is really intricately connected to that relationship. Well, and I just so, experienced what you're talking about. I, 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 I happens to me all the time. I mean, just speaking for myself as, you know, there's always little things that pop up, and I think, up, oh, yeah, I think about my grandfather, and all emotion comes up. And, you know, it's someone who spent 30 years of my life with me, mm-hmm. and so, you know, would help raise me, spent tons of time with him as a little kid, and even as an adult. So I, I know exactly what you're talking about. You've got to assume it's happening for everybody, it, or, or it, could happen for everyone. And it will. If you, if you live long enough and you love people, you will grieve. And, you know, when you lose those people who are really, really close to you, it can be very hard. And, you know, as we were saying before, in our society, it's just not recognized, sadly. Well, let's, let's, I, I want to keep talking about this idea of the chaos, because I think that's real for our kids and for probably everybody. But we got a commercial break we got to take. So when we come back, we'll talk more about kind of dealing with the chaos that comes with grieving. Uh, We'll be right back after this. Autism Spectrum Therapies is proud to present Autism Spectrum Radio. At AST, we see a world where people with autism dream and achieve their full potential. Our promise is to support families through our extensive resources, highly trained staff, and outstanding programs. At AST, we recognize that every child is unique. We are proud to offer what we believe is the most cohesive approach to supporting your child's needs and goals at each stage. From ABA to speech therapy, occupational therapy, and social skills, we have the elements you need to build the plan that is just right for you. One company, one team, with one mission to support individuals and their families to dream and achieve their full potential. Call us today to let us know how we can best support your family at 866-727-8274. To find out more about ASD, visit our website at www.autismtherapies.com. Hey, everybody. We're back at Autism Spectrum Radio. I'm joined by Carla Helbert, and we're talking about dealing with the loss of a loved one and the grief process and helping to support individuals on the spectrum. Um, you know, right before the break, Carla, we were, we were starting to talk about that idea of chaos and the, you know, not just the chaos that comes with dealing with the grieving process itself, but obviously an individual on the spectrum is going to probably have that um, accentuated even more because of the issues with transition, some of the sensory um, issues that they may have. Like there's a lot of different factors. And, you know, one of the things that I know I really go back to and, and actually has helped me through the grieving process, and, and you and I spoke a little bit about this, was, was kind of like rituals, um, mm-hmm. religious rituals or cultural rituals or things like that. And I, 
I know you and I started talking about that a little bit yesterday, but is that a good source to help create more structure amongst this chaos for our kids on the spectrum? Yes. And, you know, it's, it's one way. And it, that, uh, rituals and remembrance activities do a lot of things. Mm-hmm. And just really quick off of that, with the chaos, I mean, we're talking, yeah. you know, as you're saying, for a kid on the spectrum, they deal with so many problems with changes and transitions. And so this is a huge, huge problem. And if you think about a family that's also grieving, how many ways is that family's schedule and their life disrupted because of the death, whether it's initially because of what's going on with, you know, funerals and things that are happening or trauma or whatever's going on, you know, or also a long terminal illness. If somebody's in the hospital for a long time, that really plays havoc with schedule. Mm. And how is the kid affected by that? And then afterwards, you know, with, with their own internal experience or with the surviving parent or the other family members that are around, how are they going through it and how does that affect things? And so paying close attention to making sure that we can maintain as much as possible schedules of activities and, you know, morning rituals, nighttime rituals, I mean, you know, bedtime things. Mm -hmm. That's really important. And then I'm glad you brought that in about remembrance or religious or spiritual kinds of rituals. They're really major. Um, A therapist that I really admire a lot, Tom Golden, is an LCSW, and he practices a lot with um, men in grief is one of his areas. And there's a quote of his that he says, grief is a process that demands ritual. And I have found that that's definitely true. And whether it's a, a large ritual, like a funeral, but we can have rituals anytime we want. I mean, I wear a charm bracelet every single day that was sent to me by a mother of um, a college friend of mine. And I had never met this woman at the time. And I didn't know that my friend had had a brother die in infancy. And so her mother sent me this charm bracelet with these charms on it, specifically for my son, and I wear it every day. And the putting on that bracelet is a ritual process. So they can be small ones like that, you know, wearing a piece of jewelry that maybe belonged to the person who died or sleeping with their shirt next to your pillow, that can be a ritual. But then you can have, you know, larger rituals where the family maybe cooks all the favorite foods of that person. And in doing that, it helps to create a little bit of stability and Within a ritual, what you're doing is you're creating a safe space, mm-hmm. the container for allowing those feelings, the chaotic feelings, the painful feelings, the sad feelings to come out and to be there in that space. And it's like you're able to examine and, and sit with those feelings and see that, well, you know, these things are part of me and they're part of my history and part of my life. Whether you sort of have thoughts like that about them or not, just being with your own feelings in that space and remembering the person. And then, you know, dinner's over, you clean up the dishes, that's part of that closing off of that space. Mm-hmm. And then you sort of go back to, quote, unquote, normal life, as normal as you can get, and you move to the next thing. But every time you have a small little ritual like that, one thing that my husband and I do every time we'll toast, you know, to our son when we have a special drink or whatever or a special meal or mm-hmm. at anybody's birthday or any other celebration, we toast to him. And our daughter, who's four, does it too. And so now that's my ritual in our family. You know, oh, toast to Brother Theo, you know, and that's what we do. And it brings us all closer, like you were saying, connection among surviving family members where we all recognize together we've all lost something and we can all continue to move through this together 
And not, the other really important thing that rituals like that do is it continues to create a bond, a continuing bond with that person who's no longer here because I'm a big believer in not having to say goodbye to people. Why should you have to do that? You know, if your father dies, he's always going to be your father. Why should you have to say goodbye to that? You're always going to be, you're always going to be your grandfather's grandson. That's mm-hmm. never going to change. So why should we have to say goodbye, you know? And I think one of the things I really like about this, this idea of rituals personally is, you know, as I was reading through the book and as we've been talking, you know, one of the first thoughts that comes to my head is, okay, we're doing certain activities or having certain conversations or even that uh, short story that you wrote to um, the child you worked with. You know, I think about, okay, a lot of this seems like it may be geared more to the child who is maybe higher functioning on the spectrum, maybe um, the child who is more verbal, maybe has higher level of social skills. Like I know in the book there's uh, a lot of discussion about feelings and emotions, and a lot of our kids on the spectrum, particularly ones who are a little bit younger, uh, a little bit more delayed, uh, struggle there. Mm-hmm. But a ritual is routine. And exactly. I've seen it time and time again where if I explain in a consistent manner, my routine, what it is we're doing, why we're doing it, time and time again, my kids, they prove me, to me that I got it. Mm-hmm. I'm with you, Rob. You may, I may not say to you, Rob, I got this. Thank you for doing this. But I see them respond to it. I, the routine gets easier. It becomes more natural. They're doing more of it independently. And, I, and you you know, for not to be a behavior analyst for a second and to use kind of a non-ABA term, that there's a calm. You can almost feel it. Um, you can sense it. And I, and I really feel like maybe that is a really great tip for some of our families out there who maybe are saying, mm, will my kid get this? How do I make my kid get this? Because maybe he isn't verbal. Um, that would be that first thought. But these routines can really help. Um, and I love the idea of, like, is there a favorite meal? And then have that conversation of, hey, this is dad's favorite meal. We're going to make it every Friday. Um, and by the togetherness and the dialogue with the child or the other siblings or whomever, it, it, that really feels like it could go a long way. Oh, totally. I love what you said. Ritual is routine. And it is. And I think in grief for anybody, ritual should be routine. because, And, and we do it without even recognizing that we're doing it often. But mm-hmm. If we can recognize that it helps us, then we should make every effort to put it in place. All kind, I mean, there's so many, and in the book, there's a whole entire, there's pages of them, little things that you can do, making a CD of the person's favorite songs or, you know, getting together and watching that person's favorite movies, you know, one Friday out of every night. You know, all of those little things, and they help to maintain a bond, and they help to help the family be feel more together. And... I'm glad you brought that up because I don't think that this book has to be just for people who are quote-unquote higher functioning or even for kids who may have reading problems because then somebody else can sit down and read with them. And a lot of the activities may or may not be for everybody, but there's Mm -hmm. some checklists in there that talk about, you know, what you're going through, feelings that you're having, and also validating that you don't have to be having all kinds of crazy feelings. Sometimes, especially for people on the spectrum, they may go into a place where they just kind of feel numb. And if they're not crying, if they're not acting like 
showing, you know, the grieving symptoms that everybody else thinks is what you should be showing if you're grieving, then people think, well, what's going on? They're not grieving. That's okay, too. And I, and I have a sentence in there where I say, if they don't speak, that doesn't mean they don't have anything to say. Right. Well, I like, I really love the, the message. And you say this a few different times in a few different ways. I really hit me. I, I highlighted it, actually, where you said, like, grieving doesn't have to look the same way for everyone. Grieving can take a long time or it could take a short time. Like, there is no, it's almost like there's no rules to it. There's, you know, as much as, you know, I'm an ABA person who loves to define things and say this is what it looks like, but that's not grieving. That's right. And it doesn't have to be. And, you know, I, as an ABA person, I actually feel comfortable with that, which I'm impressed by myself for. <laughs> good um, for you. Yeah, because... I'm showing my flexibility. It's good. <laughs> Yay. Um, you know, because I'm telling you, really, it's true. Grief is chaos, and it's scary yeah. for a lot of people. And so for people on the spectrum who – I know why ABA works so well because they thrive on that ritual. They thrive right. on that predictability, the and routine. this is going to happen, then this, then this, then this, and that is not what happens when you're grieving. It's just not. Yeah. That's, that's a really good point. I mean, I, I, I didn't really think about that, but, yeah, there, the chaos and, you know, to put my ABA hat back on, I think for a, a BCBA out there, for a behavioral technician out there, it's almost like one of the things we should keep in mind is, okay, this person is in chaos. Some of the best ways for me to help a family, maybe not from a grief counseling standpoint, but just from a therapeutic standpoint is structure, routines. Um, help put the routines back in place. Because like I'm thinking of years ago, this one young man who he was, his grandmother passed away, but she was, ended up living with them for about three, four months. Um, up until she passed and she was staying in his bedroom. So he was in a different part of the house while she stayed in this bedroom, which was a little bit bigger, a little bit quieter, a little bit uh, better for her to stay in. And God, his life must have been turned upside down in during that three to four months. And then his life is turned back upside down in the next X number of months, however long it took for him to go through his own process. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, that's where I can help, and that's where maybe it's just me not trying to do all these different things, but say, let's put some routines back in place. You know, Let's just try and get to some basics back in place. Like you said, a really good morning routine, a really good nighttime routine, and as, a, as an ABA person, that, that could be a really good way for me to help out. Absolutely, and it's, and, and it's hard, too, because if there are other grieving people in the family, they may not feel like doing that. Yeah. You know, there are a lot of people who are grieving just want to stay in bed, and that's a, and that's a normal feeling. That's not pathological. Sure. That's normal. And so when you're talking about the mom who's grieving her husband and yeah. then also knowing, oh, I've got to get out of the bed and, and get these kids off the school. Right. I have to provide some kind of mm. something for them. You know, supporting the parents in keeping that routine or, you know, reestablishing some kind of routine for their children, and they're going to need support in that. Yeah. I think that is, that is a great point that I think every professional out there working with the kids on the spectrum needs to remember. Mm. Um, I want to end on that point and so we can go to uh, one final commercial break, but we're going to come back after this with some more discussion with Carla. Autism. 
Autism Spectrum Therapies is proud to present Autism Spectrum Radio. At AST, we see a world where people with autism dream and achieve their full potential. Our promise is to support families through our extensive resources, highly trained staff, and outstanding programs. At AST, we recognize that every child is unique. We are proud to offer what we believe is the most cohesive approach to supporting your child's needs and goals at each stage. From ABA to speech therapy, occupational therapy, and social skills, we have the elements you need to build the plan that is just right for you. One company, one team, with one mission, to support individuals and their families to dream and achieve their full potential. Call us today to let us know how we can best support your family at 866-727-8274. To find out more about ASD, visit our website at www.autismtherapies.com. This is Autism Spectrum Radio. If you have a question or comment for the host or guest, please send an email to moreinfo at autismtherapies.com. That's moreinfo at autismtherapies.com. Now, back to the program. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Autism Spectrum Radio. Uh, we have a few more minutes left with our guest, uh, Carla Helbert, and we're talking about navigating the grief process for children and teens on the autism spectrum. Um, and, you know, I wanted to kind of end our show talking about uh, something that, uh, Carla, you and I spoke about on the phone uh, just yesterday. And, you know, you really, you ended our conversation with this really great message that I've been thinking a lot about since. Um, and the idea of having kids and having our kids on the spectrum participate in any religious um, customs, any religious ceremonies, or any just community or cultural things that my family may engage in, because it creates a a sense of community. And I I really love that, because I've spent a lot of time working with kids, and I've had families who say, I want to have my child be bar mitzvahed, or I want my child to um, have a communion. And it, it makes perfect sense that we would take it further to these other customs. Um, and I, I wanted you to talk more about that because, you know, this show is all about community, and that just made so much sense to me. Well, yes. I mean, and I think that's, you know, when you talk about families who say, I want my child to be bar mitzvahed or, or participate in First Communion or whatever the thing is, that's really important because if you grow up in a particular religion or culture or tradition, regardless what it is. It doesn't even have to be religious. Mm-hmm. But whatever it is, you need to feel part of that community. That's the reason we have those things, yeah. because it draws us together and it creates community. That's one of the most important things that church does is provides community and support, whether it's a church or a synagogue or a temple or a mosque or whatever it is. Or even if you, know, you don't – it's a secular community – because spirituality doesn't have to be connected to a religion. 
you know, and, and the book, there's right. a whole chapter on that and, you know, talks about people who are atheists as well who make connections in, in whatever way they have of having those traditions and memorials. But talking specifically about religious ceremonies and rituals, sometimes, and I found in my practice that I'll, and people will come in and it's already done. I mean, I can't intervene because it's past. Right. But they didn't let their children participate in funerals or in any kind of tradition because they thought, oh, they're going to be scared or they're going to be, they're going to have a behavior problem or whatever. And I think that that's a mistake because then it makes the thing a mystery. It's like, oh, this thing's happening and the adults are doing it, but I'm not allowed. So, and kids have this really great ability, whether they're on the spectrum or not. If they're not told something, then they'll create it in their head. And usually whatever they imagine in their head is way worse than whatever we just tell them the truth is you know, or just show yeah. them. And so I recommend being really truthful with the children about what's going on and using, and again, with, with kids on the spectrum, using your language appropriately is really important. Don't talk about passing away or grandpa we lost Grandpa because they'll be like, right. well, where is he? You know, is he behind the sofa? What's going on? Is he going to come back? Should we put out, you know, an Amber Alert or something? Because is he going to come back? No. You talk about death and what it means and you use words like dead and dying and death. And then when you have the rituals, let them know what's going to happen. You know, we talk about preparation for kids on the spectrum. When we have, you know, stories that prepare them for what's going to happen or we make visual aids for them and we tell them, this is going to happen when you go to the doctor. This is going to happen when you have to do this, this, or this. This is going to happen when we go to a funeral. And here's exactly what's going to go on. And then you let them choose. You know, you say, would you like to come? Or you give them the option. If you come and you feel uncomfortable, you know, so-and-so will take you out. But letting them have the choice. Well, Never I think saying that, you can't come. And I think you, you allude to something that's really key just for a parent who may want to do this to keep in mind is, like, have a game plan, you know. Yes. If they do need to take a break from the situation, who's going to take them? Like, have that pre-thought out, obviously, because I can only imagine if you are the parent and you are yourself in the grieving process, mm -hmm. when you're in that moment, it's probably going to be impossible to think about who's going to take my son, who's going to take my daughter, so they can take a break um, right there on the spot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, that's one a very good point. Of, one of the things that I also like that, yeah, I, I like this about the, the story. We've, we've talked about the short story that opens up your book, When People Die. And, you know, again, it's very concrete. You're very specific. It, there's, you know, it, it, at first I was like, wow, this is really direct. But then I said, this is for a child with autism, mm -hmm. and I can't use slang. I can't use these words that could be unclear. I need to be really direct. And I think, you know, that's just a another thing that I – wasn't expecting, but mm -hmm. I think I got out of our conversations in reading the book, um, which I think was really uh, just another good reminder for our families. Mm, definitely. You have to be concrete. And the whole book is that way. I mean, it's, this is not, this is, this concept of death and dying, most grown people, neurotypical or not neurotypical, cannot wrap their minds around it. I mean, it's hard. Mm -hmm. and so we're trying to explain something that is very, very abstract to people who, who tend to need to function on a very concrete level. Yeah. Well, we are, we're pretty much out of time, Carla. Um, thank you so much for joining me. If, um, 
you know, for any of our listeners out there who maybe say, hey, I want to I pick this book up. This sounds like it's something that's really great for me or for a loved one or, or for anyone out there. Uh, how can they go about finding the book? Um, well, the book is published by Jessica Kingsley Publishers, and it's available on their website, uh, which is jkp.org. It's also available on Amazon.com and on Barnes & Noble. Um, the book was released last month in the U.K., and actually in two days, so November 15th, it is available for, for order. It's pre-orderable right now, but they'll be sending them out on the 15th um, in the U.S. and Canada and Australia, New Zealand, and everywhere else. So I'm really excited, and it's just really great. And I hope so much that it will be able to help a lot of families and people on the spectrum and not on the spectrum and caregivers and therapists and just people everywhere. So I appreciate you so much having me today, and I just am so thankful. No, I, I really appreciate you coming on and opening our eyes to this. You know, my, my kind of closing thought, for, for everyone out there that really meant a lot to me and is something that, you know, I came back to me really quickly as I started talking to Carla is, you know, we talked about the religious piece and I know me personally, I, I mentioned my grandfather passing away and I remember being 13 and my grandfather passing away and, you know, I, I, I'm Jewish. I was raised in a Jewish house and we participate in, in a ritual called the Shiva call, and it's a you sit Shiva for a week, and people come and visit, and you eat, you have food out there, but the whole purpose is to tell stories and, and almost celebrate the life of the individual. And this man showed up to pay his respects, and I'd never met him before, and I've never seen him ever again. And he told me this story, and it was the funniest story I have ever heard about my grandfather and he was a pretty funny guy with uh, a lot of quirks so there was a lot of funny stories and I'm laughing and I'm crying and to this day it's still it's actually my favorite memory of my grandfather or one of is this story that a stranger told me but is just one of those endearing memories that's been with me ever since and you know why I share this story is that I feel like our, the kids on the spectrum that I worked with, um, who I've had the pleasure of, of working with their families, they could participate in this too. They could participate in this, this uh, ritual, this custom, in their own way. You know, I was a kid. I was 13, and I needed to take breaks. I needed to walk away. I needed to go into the other room. Um, it was an intense and uh, emotional experience, but so too could our kids participate, you know, they could take breaks. But sitting there and seeing the emotions and, and all of this um, helps bring them part of the community. And, and this was the community coming in, paying their respects and showing support to my family and to my grandfather and my, um, my dad. And it was just a really, it was a special memory that I think our kids on the spectrum can, can share as well if, if they, if and when they have to go through this. Uh, so with that, uh, I want to thank everyone for being on the show or sorry, listening to the show, Carla, for being on the show. Um, I'm just really glad that we were able to tackle a really difficult topic and one that, as she said, um, to me earlier is, is painful, is hard, is difficult, but it can be sad. It can be happy. It can be a lot of different emotions. It doesn't have to just be one. So I hope you guys out there got some really great strategies. Uh, if you have 
more questions, want to talk more about what we've talked about today, reach out to us at moreinfo at autismtherapies.com. Go to the website. We're, we're constantly updating with more information, and I hope to add more about the grieving process as well. Hope all of you guys have a great week, and we will talk to you next week when we have another guest and move on to another great conversation. Have a good one, everyone. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of Autism Spectrum Radio. For additional information and resources about autism, visit www.autismtherapies.com. Please join us each week for a new episode or visit our archive to listen to and download previous shows.